Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm going to be with you for the next four weeks. So hopefully you guys don't get bored easy. But um, today and next week is going to be part one and part two of this series I called Fasting and Prayer Casts Out Devils. Okay. Um, so I guess the perspective I want to take in this is not necessarily a practical guide on how to fast and how to pray that's probably not what I'm going to do um, and I'm not going to discuss the why of fasting in detail um, but what I want to do is explore the concept of fasting and prayer in its effect on me okay so as a Christian why I need fasting and prayer and if I do fast and prayer, what is the effect? What do I get? Okay, and that's what I want to focus on. So fasting and prayer, obviously, ever since we were young, fasting and prayer has been the concept that is drilled into us. Does anyone know how many days the church fasts a year, roughly? I don't, but it's a lot. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I didn't even look at it because I know it's a lot. Um, it's probably over two-thirds of the year is fasting okay so it's a big 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 um, component of our spiritual practice and so then it makes sense for us to try and work out you know okay then if it's a really big um, <clears throat> if it's a really big uh, component of our spiritual practice then it's worth us exploring a little bit in detail um, why is this so important? You know, what is it about it that is so important? And that's what I, I hope um, to do. So like Abuna said, fasting and prayer cast out demons or devils is actually a text from the liturgy. And it's a kind of a reword of something in the Bible. And it comes from Matthew. And I'm sure everyone has Bibles. So I'm going to get you to pull out your Bibles because this is a really cool story and I'm going to get us to read parts of it. So if you go to Matthew 17. Now this particular story, when you go to Matthew 17, you're going to find it's actually the story of transfiguration. And when you begin to read through the, the text, um, you find that it's got nothing to do with fasting and prayer whatsoever. Okay, except the last bit in verse 21. So what we're going to do is I'm going to tell you roughly what happened in Transfiguration really quickly. Okay, so Jesus takes three of his disciples. Okay, he says we're going up to the mountain. Now when Jesus usually goes up to the mountain, do you know why in, in the texts, when you look at the texts in the, in the gospel, every time Jesus decides to go to the mountain, what does he usually do? Does anyone know? He usually spends time in prayer, yeah. So it's generally a dedication to prayer. And especially, and you know that it's going to be really intense prayer when he selectively picks people. Okay, so in this time, he selectively picked three and he took them up to the mountain. It doesn't say they went up for prayer or fasting or any of that, but I'm implying, I'm, I'm implying here that that's what happened. So they went up and during this uh, experience up on the mountain, the transfiguration happens. And everyone knows the transfiguration. So all of a sudden, Christ is revealed in his divine glory to these three disciples. Um, there's lots of light, there's lots of sound, there's lots of clouds, there's, there's an environment of all that is created. And then there's two characters that appear with Jesus as well. Does anyone know who they are? 
Now you need to speak louder because of all the technology stuff. What is it? Who is it? Elijah and Moses, okay? And then all of a sudden, you imagine those three disciples, they're struck, you know, they're all struck. There is the revelation of God. Um, and then they hear the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Okay. Now that happens. And then everything kind of, you know, they, they, they're freaked out. They crowd over and they're kind of hiding their heads, freaked out about what's, what, what just happened. And Christ comes over and says, it's all good. Everything's finished. Let's go. And they walk down to the, the bottom of the mountain. And then right there, they encounter this particular scene that we're going to read right now okay so <clears throat> it starts from we're going to read um, from 14 okay so from verse 14 to 21 and when they had come to the multitude a man came to him kneeling down to him and saying lord have mercy on my son for he is an, epilept an epileptic and suffers severely for he often falls into the fire and often into the water so i brought him to your disciples but they could not cure him then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Now he's, he's talking, he's not talking to the man, he's talking to his disciples. Yeah? He's trying to send a message. Because the guy said, hey, I tried to, uh, we tried to come to your disciples and, you know, they, we said, can you help him? And they couldn't. They tried everything, you know, they tried praying and matanias and they did and they did and did, but they couldn't help him. So Jesus is talking to them, you know, you, you're weak of faith. How long do I have to be with you? How long shall I bear with you? He says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, so you can imagine what's happened. The miracle occurs and then the disciples are kind of freaked out a little bit. Yeah, because, you know, a few days before they must have encountered this guy and they were trying everything possible to cure him. They couldn't. Then here Jesus comes, the guy meets him. He puts his hand, it's all done and dusted. And what they couldn't achieve, what they had assumed impossible, became what? Possible. And so to them, you can imagine what starts to rush through their heads. They say, wait a sec. We've been taking out demons and we've been, you know, healing the sick and we've been preaching in your name and we've been praying like you've prayed. Because remember, the disciples have been already commissioned into service by this stage. But yet... We couldn't do this so they take him on the side and they say hey can you explain what happened why i couldn't why we couldn't take out this particular sickness so jesus said to them because of your unbelief for assuredly i say to you if you have faith as a mustard seed you know what a mustard seed looks like a really really small kind of thing i don't know how he, why he thought of that example but a really really small insignificant seed essentially you will say to this mountain Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And so here you have, and I'm going to touch on the, this bit that we read, and then try and work it into the transfiguration. Okay? So essentially in that bit we've just read, we see three layers. The first is that prayer... That first, the first is only Christ fulfills the impossible. Okay, so this text is saying only Christ can do what is impossible. The second thing we see here is 
we can achieve the impossible through Christ. That's the second bit. And then the third bit is um, the imp- doing the impossible can only be achieved when you have a certain measure of faith. And then the fourth thing is this certain measure of faith faith comes through fasting and prayer. So that little text told us all those things. And I'm going to repeat it backwards. So you fast and pray, and pray. Your measure of faith increases. What seems to be impossible becomes possible through the presence of Christ. Okay, I'm going to say that again. When you fast and pray, your measure of faith increases. Making what seemed impossible become possible through Christ. Okay, that's what that section is saying. And then we start to think a little bit about the transfiguration story. Why does the author link these two together? And actually, a lot of people, um, so a lot of historians and critics say that these two events aren't that linked in time. But the author decided to link them. Why he decided to link them? Like I said, most likely, if Christ had told them that this type only comes out by fasting and prayer, and he took it out, then there is an implicit here, yeah? The implicit is that Jesus was what? Fasting and praying. It's only an implicit, okay? Which means the gospel didn't actually say that, but we can imply that. That if he came down and he, he did a miracle and said, actually, this miracle can only be done by fasting and prayer, we can imply that we can understand that Christ was fasting and pray, praying. And then we can look at the transfiguration. And when, they, when he goes to the transfiguration, what is occurring? It's a revelation of Christ's divinity. That's what the, the, the transfiguration is. And so what we're, what we're actually seeing here and the linkage that's occurring is that this fasting and praying, because it's increasing this measure of faith, faith what it's actually doing is creating a revelation of God in my life. It's allowing me to be in the presence of God. That's what the transfiguration is about. That experience on the mountain was an experience, it was a spiritual experience of fasting and prayer and dedication. And at that moment, there was this transfiguration, which is the revelation of the presence of God. And then they go down to the mountain, they come across this event, and Christ starts to begin to explain to his disciples what is occurring. And his explanation is that fasting and praying, if we try and condense these four things, is fasting and praying is the way in which a Christian begins to feel, see, hear, and experience God more fully. So through fasting and prayer, we begin to feel and see and hear and experience God more clearer and more fully. 
Now, when you say it like that, no wonder it is the most cherished practice in the church. Because as a Christian, my whole purpose, my whole drive, my whole uh, reason that I am a Christian is because I want that deeper experience of God. I want that God is revealed in me. I want to know God more. I want to see Him more. I want to understand Him more. I want to hear His voice more. That's the whole reason we're Christian. We can't fool ourselves. There's nothing else about being in this religion than that. Even our name, we bear that name of Christ. We are Christian. Why? Because we want to be like Him. We want to see Him. We want to know Him. And so fasting and prayer in that context is really the only way that I can grow to the point that Christ is revealed in me and around me and I can experience him fully. Now it's only in that experience that things that used to be impossible become possible. Because, like I said, the first point in that is only Christ can do what is impossible. Then how do I do it? Well, I only do it because when I fast and pray, when my measure of faith increases, the presence of God is revealed. I enter into his presence in a very mystical and deep way. And that's what unlocks the impossible. That is what makes a sin, for example, that has hold of me. You know, when you feel like you're in chains and it could be a habit or a, 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 some type of um, sin that you, you love so much you can't get rid of. But, you know, it's, that is an impossibility by human measure. And so then you hear the church begin to say, if you have one of those things, you know what the answer is? Fast and pray. Why? Because actually in fasting and prayer, that impossible becomes possible because I get to experience God. God is revealed to me. I understand him more. I feel him more. I hear him more. And therefore he can begin to act. And then we, we say with St. Paul, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So St. Paul understood he had, he had the spiritual practice of fasting and prayer nailed. And that's why he said, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. St. Paul did the impossible, but he only did the impossible through fasting and prayer. There is no other mechanism that we know that we can find in the texts, in our patristic writings, that give us much more uh, power in revealing the presence of God than fasting and prayer. Where this text comes, comes from, fasting and prayer casts out devils, from the fraction, is from the... Um, Fraction, and if you if you look at the the layers of text in that in that uh, script in that manuscript, what is it about? What is it about? Does anyone recall what what the fraction is talking about in Lent? No. Hmm. Is it all the document, all the things that happen through fasting yeah, so it's like a story of, uh, you know, generation upon generation that achieved what? What did they achieve through fasting and prayer? They achieved the impossible through fasting and prayer. But the impossible is not our work. It's not something we can do. It is only something Christ can do. And we can't do that without having the measure of faith. 
And we can't have the measure of faith without fasting and prayer. It doesn't work. And therefore, that's why we begin to understand why there's like 200 and something days of fasting in the church. That's why we embed fasting and prayer together. We call them the wings, you know, the, the wings. Without them, you can't soar. But with them, you begin to soar, which is impossible. But that's what it's about. When Christ came, he said, I didn't come to, give, to make you kind of normal people. I came to identify what is impossible and then give it to you. And he said, what is that that is impossible? I came to make you saints. I came to make you like me. And we say, that's impossible. I say, exactly, yes, it is impossible. But it's possible with me. And so we understand that fasting and prayer now has a different meaning. And it actually can't work any other way. The next bit we need to think about is we want to delve into a little bit about okay it is it helps me with the measure of faith but as humans we have a problem okay we have a little problem that problem is we need to rationalize and understand everything with our mind and so we kind of want to work out all right what is it what is this fasting doing what is the mechanisms what is the process flow that makes this actually happen now i can't answer that i'm not going to attempt to answer that i'll leave it to somebody else because i don't know to me fasting and prayer, this formula is a mystery. Yeah, you know what a mystery is? It's a mystery where an outward expression of spiritual practice leads to a revelation of God. It's a mystery. I don't know how to answer it. But when we go through the text, we can start to get some glimpses of what fasting is doing to us. And why, if I do this fast and in prayer with honesty and sincerity, I can have the revelation of God. I can see God revealed in me and in my life. And it's, it's kind of um, three things that I've picked. And there's, there's probably other things, but I'm, I've picked the three major things that I can take from text, from, from the scripture and from um, some of the patristic writings. One, fasting reminds us of our humanity okay fasting reminds us of our humanity and when i am reminded of my humanity and its limitation i can see the glory and righteousness of god much clearer so fasting reminds me of my humanity because what it does is it allows me when i start to fast i can feel the passion and the need for things like food and whatever else I'm going to stop. And so all of a sudden I can see that I am in need of something physical and exterior. I become human. If I was to stop or try to resist a temptation or an evil thought or a, or a habit or whatever during the fast, I will see that within me starts a huge war, a conflict. And in that, I realize my humanity. I realize that I'm struggling. And actually, the more I struggle with it and the more I fail, the more I realize my humanity. That's what fasting is about. 
And the more I realize my humanity, the more I can clearly see the righteousness and the glory of God. And that brings me closer to God. That is a revelation of God. Think of Peter. An event where he goes into, you know, Christ is preaching on the, on, at, the, at the shore. And then he decides, let's go into the boat. We're going to get into the boat. We're going fishing. Come on, Peter. Come on, disciples. We're going fishing. So he tells Peter, go into the deep and we're going to fish. And Peter says, look, I'm a seasoned fisherman and I've been fishing all night. There are no fish to be found. And Jesus says, just trust me, cast your net. And he casts, they cast the net and they catch more fish than their nets can handle. That they had to call the other boats, come and help us. What does Peter say after that? He says, Jesus, go out of my boat, for I am a sinful man. Now, why are these two things related? Go out of my boat. Now, the reason he says go out of my boat is not, because he's re- not only because he's really bad. It's because Christ is what? Very good. When he realized his limited ability, not only as a fisherman, but the fact that his limited ability in faith, that he couldn't see what he's about to do, that with all his efforts, with all his knowledge, with all his abilities, with everything he knew, he couldn't answer the question. But Christ could. And in that moment, he says, leave. You have to get out because you are too good and I am too sinful. That's a revelation. Peter had so many revelations. If you read the four Gospels, you find that Peter is having revelation after revelation after revelation. He's the, he's the guy that keeps having revelations and forgetting about him. Yeah? But it didn't matter because those revelations, that accumulation of revelation, when kind of wrapped up in the work of the Holy Spirit, makes Peter who he became. Yeah? And so every time I fast, every little bit of fasting, every little bit of realizing that I am so human and realizing that God is so great, I have that revelation. Even if the next day I go backwards, it doesn't matter. That revelation accumulated is enough. That's what's going to get me there. That's what's going to allow me when Christ allows that the presence of God penetrates my life so deeply that I become like Christ. The th- second point. God, uh, fasting humbles us in front of God. Fasting humbles us in front of God. How? In fasting, what we're actually doing is saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to find all those things that I need. And I'm going to take them and put them aside and try and focus on something else. Now, in that process, we become extremely vulnerable. I don't know if anyone's experienced this, but... You know, you say you've been fasting for a long time, a long day. You haven't eaten for, you know, past midday and you, it's getting around three o'clock and you're getting really tired and you've been really trying and you stand up to pray. 
if you've experienced that, you'll find that when you stand to pray in that, in, in that you know, moment, there is an internal sense of brokenness. There is an internal sense of vulnerability. Of that, you know what? I've tried. I've got nothing left. I've got nothing to give. I'm barely standing here to pray. I've really got nothing. And you know what? I'm standing to pray. I'm really coming here and really asking for you to do something. Because I've got nothing. I've tried and I've got nothing. That vulnerability is what really Christ loves and desires. Because in that vulnerability is when he turns around and starts to work. And you think about, you know, the woman that comes into the Pharisee's house while Christ is dining and she kind of falls over. She's a sinful woman. She falls over and starts washing his feet. You know that story? That is a story of vulnerability. It is a lady that has explored all avenues to feel good about herself. It's a lady that has explored everything to feel whole and good again. And she came up with nothing. And at that moment when she feels so vulnerable, she comes to Christ in the worst possible circumstances. He is having dinner at the Pharisee's house. The people that judge and criticize for a living. And she throws herself vulnerable as in she doesn't know what Christ is going to do. She doesn't know what he's going to do right then and there. Is he going to accept her gift or not? She doesn't know, but she's so vulnerable. She's so humble. She's at her, his feet. She's got nothing left. She washes his feet. And what does he say to her? He says, go away. Your sins are forgiven. Actually, you know what? You got more than the Pharisee got. You got better than the Pharisee got. And so fasting is us being vulnerable. It helps us be vulnerable in humility, coming to Christ. And at that moment, it's when Christ really opens the floodgates and gives and gives and gives. And that's why fasting, you know, this mechanism is what helps us see God clearer, know Him more, get an experience of His grace that we couldn't in any other way. And three, fasting increases our desire for God. It's kind of two ways. It's kind of a loop, yeah? So it is an expression of our desire for God. Because if we think about fasting as, you know, the, the thing that gives me the revelation or the, the experience of God more deeply, then the fact that I'm fasting means that I'm looking, I'm looking for Him. I'm searching. I'm seeking. But it's not only an expression of seeking. It's actually the driver of seeking. When I fast, my desire for God increases. Because when I'm fasting and I'm praying, what I'm actually doing is saying, God, I'm looking for you. I am seeking. And he said, when you seek, you will find. And if you knock, I will open to you. And so this expression of what we do, which is that fasting and prayer to seek God, to go after Him, looking for Him. At that moment, I receive. And the more I receive, it's kind of a weird kind of thing that happens. The more I receive, what happens? 
the more I want, the more I seek. And so fasting and prayer, not only is it an expression of my seeking, but it, it drives my seeking. It makes my seeking even more. It makes me want to find Him even more. Because the more I go seeking, the more He gives me. And the more He, he gives me, the more I taste of that, the more I want it. And, you know, there was, um, um, there was a, a book I was reading, I can't remember which book, but it, can't, it said, it was talking from the author's perspective, and he said there was, when I was a young man, um, I was close to church and, uh, you know, doing a lot of uh, spiritual activity, and one night he, remem he recalls a moment where he had really an experience of God, where he really felt connected to God, where he... Um, understood God more, he can hear him more, the words in the gospel made more sense and that kind of went with him for about two or three months and that was probably in his early 20s and then after two or three months it kind of went away he lost that deep connectedness with God and then for like 20 years he never ever felt like that again and it was not only for another 20 years until he he really regained that and he started to feel that again and started to experience that deep presence of God. But what he says about that 20 years is that whole 20 years, what he was doing was living his life trying to get those three months back. He was trying to replicate that. He tasted a small taste of the presence of God and for the next 20 years he chased it. He wanted it. He was desiring. And that's, that's the same thing with fasting. The more I seek, the more I receive. And the more I receive, the more I seek even harder. You know, there's a story of, about John the Short in the desert. I think it was John the Short, where he went to his brother and said, you know, this fasting thing is so beautiful and so amazing and so lovely. But now I need to take it to the next level. I want to go into the desert and I don't want to eat or drink ever again. I want to live like the angels. Now, there was a lesson for him to be had there, and his brother gave him a lesson. But think about that concept. What drives someone that is already ascetic and fasting and praying so much to get to the point where he says, actually, abstaining from food for 20 or 30 days is not enough. What I want to do is I want to cut food out totally. And you think, you, you, this kind of blows my mind. What is it? What it is, is because he went seeking. And when he went seeking, honestly, God gave him. And when he gave him, he went seeking even more. And that's really the only thing we have. And so that's why the church gives us this as a spiritual practice. Because it was a practice that was founded in the presence of God. And so, a lot of the time, we, when, we start, when we discuss fasting, what we discuss, what is our discussion around? Food, what we do with it, how we do it, what should we remove, what should we add. But it's got nothing to do with that. And it's got everything to do with the, the way to the presence of God. And I think that is much more useful and profound for us to contemplate. And the concept of seeking is a personal thing. And so 
Today I might say I'm going to fast and pray and this is the schedule I'm going to have. Five minutes of prayer, fasting, and I'm going to remove all the stuff that's really tasty. I don't know, all the meats and dairies. And then if I do that honestly, then if what, I, what the Bible is saying and what I just said is true, then you will seek further because you'll taste God in that little effort that you've just put. And when you do it, the next time you'll say, actually, you know what, I'm going to cut out food. And I'm going to cut out, cut out food to midday. And I'm going to extend my prayers. And then after that, you'll start to feel, well, when I experience God, I want to experience it even deeper. And you'll say, I'm going to go to, mid to 6 p.m. I'm going to attend the liturgy, the late liturgy from 3 to 6. And then you experience God more. And you find another way to go. But unfortunately, it's a bad experience. It's not about me talking to you about it. It's not about reading a book. It's a bad experience. And the only way that you would, you know, at the moment you might look at me and think I'm crazy. And that's okay. But the only time that it becomes real for you is when you try it. Is when you honestly try it. And like I said, if it is that fasting and prayer is, leads us into the presence of God, and that is the sole purpose that we exist as Christians, then I think that is something we need to start considering really seriously. And glory be to God forever. Amen. I'm happy to take questions. Next, next time we're going to go a little bit deeper in prayer. We're going to touch a little bit on fasting and specifically... Next time, Abuna, I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit about how did fasting end up where it is today, over the history, and then focus on prayer um, in more detail.